Lindsay Rowland. Today, we are very fortunate to have Eric Montalavo back on our show. Eric, from the Federal Practice Group here in D.C., is the lawyer for Corporal Teu, a case you know myself and advocacy groups have kept a close eye on. Eric is here to talk updates on the case. Hi, Eric. Thank you for being here. The last time we spoke on the podcast was about five months ago. Can you give me an overall update on what has transpired in the last five months on Corporal Teu's case? The summary of that is as follows. We finally secured during the litigation some expert assistance that was needed. I will say that that took way too long, and it was an unfortunate fight for something that should have been taken care of immediately. I attribute that entirely to the staff judge advocate's position in the case. We were able to get the advantage in in the sense of understanding what her mental health conditions are, the scope and severity. The government leveraged continuing confinement, which they knew she was deteriorating in over time, decompensating because she was not getting treatment in the facility and was also being harassed and uh, you know, cordoned off. There was battle ongoing within the facility that was increasingly taking a toll on her mental health and well-being, deprivation of the appropriate medication and treatment, and the, the concerns that she had regarding the foreseeable future and how long, much longer the process would take. And she consulted with uh, detailed mental care counsel. Uh, I believe they advised her that you know, if she were to take a plea, that would be in her best interest and it would sort of sever or terminate the uh, process so that she could get out. You know, I had and still maintain concern that, you know, the consequence of that would be the, you know, not necessarily conviction, but the bad conduct discharge. She wound up executing that plea. I was not present for those proceedings, the final proceedings. During those proceedings, However, my colleague was there and they indicated that the judge had recommended a suspended sentence on the bad conduct discharge. This, I believe, is a complete failure. It's one of the reasons why the military justice system is broken. You know, as would have been predicted, that recommendation fell on deaf ears because it was staffed through same staff judge advocate that had taken the position that he had taken vis-a-vis the case, which I believe was improper. And, you know, she, they approved all of the punishment, and including the BCD pending appellate review. Right now she's in appellate leave status, waiting for final appellate review, which will not be the same sort of review that is conducted on a contested matter. It's a uh, guilty plea, so it will not get the same rigorous review that a contested trial would get, and so it's most likely going to be ratified. And so that's that's where we are in terms of the state of things. She is out, struggling, hurting. During the same period of time, they also insisted on the military protective order being enforced between her and her former you know, significant other. He may still be current. I, I don't have all of the facts along the way on that, but the person who was the alleged victim in the case, who was also her significant other, and, you know, he wanted to see her after she got out, provide some support, and the Marine Corps maintained a position that that could not happen. We were prepared to file in federal court, and when we found out that they had approved the sentence of finding, 
they're releasing her from their jurisdiction. I, in my opinion, everything that's happened in the past five months reinforces and makes worse what already happened. Plainly disgusting to me, if I could say. And, you know, if this is the way that soldiers, sailors, Marines are going to be dealt with in the system, you know, I wouldn't join. If I knew what I know now about how the military conducts its business internally, this is not something that I would support, you know, and I'd support my my sons joining the military at this juncture, given, you know, the type of leadership and, you know, management, we used to call it leadership, is occurring. Past five months, tough to see, but, you know, it's, if you take a sober look at what's happening, people have choices, and I think they should make a choice. They should, you know, how military members are being treated in the military, sons and daughters of, of these parents running around investing, you know, their heart, you know, and soul, uh, blood, sweat, and tears, financial, to, to raise these young people, for them to be put in the trust and confidence of, of the military, and then to be brutalized in this way is, is, is really heartbreaking. You know, we are quickly forgetting the sacrifice that people make to serve our country. And, and I take that personally. Okay. There are a lot of people that are, have been harmed over the years that have sacrificed more than you can tell. In this case, we have a young lady who fiercely loved the Marine Corps. That was reflective of her record. She served fantastically well. And when she got broken because another service member sexually assaulted her, not only did we abandon her, but we criminally prosecuted her for that. And there isn't a person on this earth that can come and tell me that was good to go. It's the wrong answer. It's the wrong outcome. It's the wrong, you know, decisions after decisions uh, being made. And, and past five months, again, hard, but that's where we are. And we'll continue to press where we can. Yeah, that's very interesting that some of the things that you said, considering that you are, you are a Marine. And so it's interesting that you would be showing some hesitation to having your sons join. That's a little concerning and scary, but I do want to go back um, to a few things that you mentioned and ask a few questions, if that's okay with you. Do you think that Tay has remorse after accepting this plea deal? And the second part of the question is, do you think that was always the plan of the prosecution was to keep her incarcerated to wear her down to accept a plea? All right. So I'll answer the second question first. And that is not only was that the plan, it was the stated course in emails. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like they hid that from us. They, you know, outwardly said, the longer you fight this, the harder it's going to be on her. And that's your problem. You know, forget her ability to have her be in court and hold people accountable and question, you know, what's going on. I feel like there was a missed opportunity to put this on full display and potentially achieve a different outcome. But I wasn't incarcerated. I was not suffering from those mental health conditions. I was not vulnerable. I was not abandoned. And so I could not make that judgment. She had to make that judgment for herself because it's her life, right? And, you know, they absolutely played that card. And they prevailed and that's fine. You know, they, they won that tactical victory, but strategically, I think it's, it's an abomination and a failure. And if somebody doesn't look back on this and, and sort of reconcile what is going on vis-a-vis -vis mental health in the military, which is going to become an exponentially more difficult problem over time, given, you know, all things that are happening. I mean, you overlay Afghanistan right now, people, we, I lost brothers 
and sisters in Afghanistan. Okay. You know, there are people that went over there and, you know, sacrificed a lot, sometimes the ultimate sacrifice to execute a mission after 9-11. And we are now, we've left that entire population exposed and people are dying right now as we speak, are getting killed in the street, assassinated for believing in what we believe in. And we left them there. So I don't know if this is a trend. I don't know if this is the pattern of senior leadership on how we're going to handle things. But if this is, is this what our future holds, I, I am extraordinarily concerned. Your first question, I apologize. What was, what was that again? The, the, uh, the first question was, do you think Tay has remorse after oh, accepting remorse. this yeah. plea? That's right. Yeah. I am not going to, you know, debate over your word choice. Remorse, in my opinion, is not the right word. For me, remorse is that she did something wrong. You know, I don't believe that that's accurate. I think she had, you know, what we call buyer's remorse, if that's what you're referring to. That was actually the original question, but I had somebody (laughs) edit my questions and they changed the wording on it. So it's interesting that you you were. Well, remorse in criminal context is typically, you know, are you remorseful for the harm that you committed or the thing that you did and whatnot? Here, in terms of regret, maybe is the better word. Did she regret signing that? Sure. Um, You know, but, you know, she's living with that. She made that choice. You know, you know, how does someone who is suffering from a disease, a severe disease or mental defect, apologize for being sick? Does someone apologize for being sick with COVID? Cancer? I mean, where, when, when do we start thinking through what we're asking of her? She was not able to make the appropriate judgment at the time. I don't think there's any dispute about that. She, in my opinion, had a break, a, a dissociative event, and it was triggered by many things. And, you know, I, I, I would say that she's struggling within the the universe of her, I don't want to call them demons, but, you know, the challenges she has internally to to maintain herself on a daily basis. I, I think the, the, the analogy I would say is if someone is suffering from depression and, and a lot more people are suffering from it that would admit to, you know, a chronic depression, right? That uh, you wake up and you, you're just, your, your ability to move forward in the day or life is, is strained and it's dragging on you. And there, there are many reasons for that, you know, you, you're not going to say, I'm sorry, explain away why you feel that way. It is a condition, right? And, you know, most of us, the majority of us have to move through uh, those feelings and pressure to get to the other side. And it's a challenge. She has that level of issue times a thousand. So she's waking up every day, not in a uh, typical framework, mental framework that most people operate in. Most people have some depression they confront. Some people have, you know, irritability, you know, obviously things like PTSD come in and, you know, whatever. Those are challenges unto themselves. She's got about 10 of those things in one bag that she's confronting every day. And, you know, I just hope and pray that she stays on a good course as she makes her way through life at this point. Do you think had she been released from the brig pending trial that 
she would have had, there would have been a different outcome to the plea. It's hard to, to come up with an alternate universe and, and, and tell you what the answer is. I mean, you know, but let's, let's, let's assume for the moment that she were left out, let out. Would she have gotten the appropriate treatment? I think the answer is no. The military already demonstrated while they had absolute care and custody of her, that they were not going to take care of her. Leaving her to her own devices, I think, would have been more troubling because she would have had the stress and then the freedom to potentially hurt herself. Okay. So you would have aggravated the very thing uh, that was occurring in some way. I'm not advocating for her confinement. I'm just saying that in, in the situation that we were in and what was going on, I think it could potentially have been worse at some level because they were completely antagonistic. I mean, remember, she requested to go to Wounded Warrior Battalion, and they denied that. And this is before the situation took place. And remember, she was also, and this is public, 90% rated disability at the VA at that point, and also medically recommended for medical retirement. So there is almost zero She's a young lady, 70% of that is relating to sexual trauma, okay, which was aggravated in the military, one of the service members that got out scot-free. You know, at the point in time where this all went down, and, and as we saw throughout the proceedings, especially when I got involved, there was, there was zero interest in taking care of this Marine and it was all about and state desired, which is get the conviction and get... And so... I, I don't believe that getting her out of confinement would have necessarily altered the course. I think it potentially could have made it worse. Also, just to add on to that, that is actually one of the points, because when we have lobbied Congress on her case, we've, you know, we have to, well, I like to bring suggestions, answers to the table. So that is one thing that we have lobbied Congress on is some sort of like process where if the command does not let a soldier go to the wounded warrior transition or battalion unit that they have to, you know, report to hire why they, that soldier is not allowed to go. Because as you said, had she been able to go, she would have at least had her a smoother transition and would have had what we would have hoped access to mental health in these battalions. Plus I believe not, not exactly sure about her location, but I believe she would have been physically located somewhere else away from her Mm -hmm. unit. So that is one thing that we, yeah, Mm -hmm. that, that I think that's an actionable thing that we can actually act on. So I kind of sense like through some of the things that you've said that you didn't really have direct access to her or maybe it was limited. Can you clarify? So did you have a serious conversation with her prior to the plea? Yes. Okay. And like, you don't have, I mean, I don't want to you know, get too into the weeds, but I just, you guys had that conversation of like, you know what you're doing and this is what the outcome could be. And these are the second and third order effects or how did, how did that conversation go? Oh, we can skip that question too. Let me answer it this way. Cause I don't want to get in the details of our exchange, but you don't call a crazy person crazy. So, I mean, at some point, you know, if the person wants to make a decision, and they feel that they're fully informed of that, then they're entitled to do that. Is it an informed decision? Well, it's informed at some level, but I mean, when you tell a 19-year-old, she's not 19, but I'm just giving you a hypothetical, that you know BCD will have lifelong consequences, 19-year-old has no idea what that means, okay? If you overlay a BCD with mental health issues, which are a challenge unto themselves, you've now created, you know, a double or triple, triple whammy, if you will. You know, the person that is suffering pain 
wants relief. If they feel that pain is the knife of confinement and that can be removed, then uh, they feel like that's a solution. It may be a short-term solution, but long-term, you know, that knife could have cut out the, the abscess. You know, it's perspective. And I think with hindsight and, and greater understanding over time, someone may look at the decision at that moment and say that was not the correct decision, but I can't judge that for her. You know, people have to, to you know, express themselves and, and, and deal with, with what they're dealing with. And, and, and I don't, I am 100% supportive of whatever she's decided, but, you know, to say that, you know, we agreed on what this looks like. I, I don't think that that's accurate because she's in a different part of her life. I deal with this all the time. This is a one-off transaction for hopefully never again, obviously. And, you know, she had to do what was in her best interest and that was stopping the pain. And that pain was confinement. So did she make the right decision regarding that? Sure. She got out. Yeah. I mean, I definitely like agree with you that, you know, the empowering part, like we have to, to, it was her decision because it was her situation to be in, but yeah. So that's interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Will she be eligible for uh, VA disability and healthcare? It's my understanding that because of her prior honorable service, that anything that can be connected to that, she will receive uh, benefit for. So the answer to that fundamentally is yes. And will she still receive the the 90%? No, she won't, right? Because she won't receive the 90% disability rating, right? Because she won't receive any disability. Well, there are two different issues. So one is the medical retirement piece and one is via disability. Those are different standards, okay? What she lost was her medical retirement, which is a huge hit, okay? And the VA has a much more liberal determination regarding disability. And as long as it can be connected to honorable service, then they can award that. So I believe that that's the case here, that she did have significant honorable service. She had an entire tour and was realistic. And, and that alleged rape, which I believe was true, occurred uh, prior to her reenlistment or shortly thereafter, well before the events that took place. I think she's got plenty of honorable service for her to sustain an award. And how do you feel about the presiding general over her discharge status, not taking into account or consideration the suspended BCD from the judge? Do you feel like it was one last attempt to punish her? And have you seen generals do this in other cases or is this unusual? I mean, yeah, it's, it's really hard to generalize vis-a-vis general officers sort of, sort of behavioral pattern. I would say that in answering your question, there are two big camps of generals. One camp of generals is give me the information and I do. The other camp is tell me what to do. In this case, it's my opinion. I was not in the room. I just observed what happened and all of the decisions that were made from the time that I got into it to the time of conclusion, including the the BCD issue that and the MPO being... (laughs) remaining in place when she's now been discharged and in a different state and is having no bearing on on the case at this point. I believe this general was being told what to do by the lawyer. And there are generals out there. Now, that is a safe course for most generals, because if you do what your attorney told you to do, you at least have that card to play. 
right? You know, if you're relying upon legal counsel, even if it's wrong, that is defense to doing something that could put you in hot water. It's a way to conduct business. I would say that I think that's weak in this case. I, th I think that listening to the lawyer tell you how to take care of a Marine, especially this particular lawyer who I don't believe understands how to lead Marines. You know, it's a huge travesty in my opinion. Now, I'm not the general. I'm not there to make those decisions. He has to operate his command the way he believes it's a, he has plenty of staff officers, you know, the S1, 2, 3, 4, what have you, or the G for the generals, G1, G2, et cetera. I mean, you know, if, if, if that's how he, you know, believes he should proceed, I mean, you know, you cannot technically fault him, but, you know, I am, I would just hope that taking care of Marine should come down to more than what, what can I do legally? Because at the end of the day, a convenience authority can do whatever the hell they want to do as long as it doesn't, you know, you know, it's not a crime, right? I knew she was getting a BCD and that that was going to be approved. There was zero question uh, in my mind. And, and, you know, so there's zero surprise because of the way that everything happened. They denied us expert medical assistance to properly evaluate her for, what, eight months? Mm-hmm. I remember why? you you were going through that last time we we spoke. That's right. So why? Why? What, what why would a general if a general's just looking at the case and sitting there and saying, "Well, how do we get to the end?" Are they entitled to medical assistance? Answer yes. And we know it's a yes because we got it granted. Mm -hmm. Right? So we know under the law we were correct. Mm -hmm. The SJA knew that too. The general would had to have been aware of that every time he denied it, right? So they were denying it, not because it was the right thing to do. It was because, or the legal thing to do, it was to make it harder. So they had zero focus on taking care of a Marine. This was a battle to be won. And that's how they played it. That for me is the pain. Not one time did they ever look at her and say, you know what? Maybe we should do something different here. Maybe we should consider these other things going on. Maybe we should actually investigate the staff sergeant that, you know, did this horrible freaking thing. Who so, works at the Pentagon now? Yeah. Well, he's now out. They let him retire. Oh, they did? Well, of course. Yes. They always, the rapists always oh, retire. Oh, all right. So the rapist retires with his full pension intact. Of course. And then, you know, so even as you're looking at that, why did the rapist, with a valid allegation, walk out and she suffer in the way that she did? So yeah, well, no, how, how does that it's work? It's infuriating. Absolutely infuriating. Yeah. I mean, no, I don't think the general in this case, if he's, if he's following the advice of his lawyer, okay, that's a method, but uh, hopefully that's not the standard of leadership in the Marine Corps in the future, because we're going to be in big trouble. Yeah. I mean, I'm just absolutely sick about this case. And you and I have talked offline a couple of times since this mm -hmm. happened. And I think, I, I mean, I personally am just sick about it because I feel mm -hmm. like we didn't get the justice that maybe we needed. And again, I'm not, mm -hmm. you know, I'm mm -hmm. not her. I didn't sit in a cell for nine months, mm -hmm. so I'm not going to, you know, take that away, the decision-making from her, but I, mm -hmm. I definitely do feel a sense of like a missed opportunity here. If you were able to have, and we talked about this before, but if you 
you were able to have your outcome, your, you know, ideal outcome on this case, what would it have been? I try cases. What does that mean? I take them the verdict, a finding of guilty or not guilty. That's what I do. People do not retain my services to, to deal. Those are not the type of cases I typically am interested in because if you're just going to plead guilty, that's what detailed military counsel can do all day, every day. That's the easy stuff. Not easy, but you know, this is, this was a complex litigation case. It was, it was, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on, especially with, with regard to mental health and other things. So outcome, I would have taken this case to trial. I would have brought in the chain of command and other key persons. And we would have made a record of this to show the disaster that this case represents. And, and I feel at the end of the day, she would have probably been acquitted. That's my opinion. I'm entitled to that opinion. And, you know, you know, I'm in the business of doing criminal defense. And, you know, I, I like to get my clients to an outcome that they deserve, uh, especially if I believe in their innocence, or at least that they're not guilty of what the government's alleging. I can tolerate it because I've chose this profession. This is their life. So if they choose not to get on a you know roller coaster that goes up two miles in the air and come down, I mean you know that's fair. They get to make that choice, you know. But I'm riding that roller coaster every day. So for me, the path was clear. I saw it. I was headed that in that direction. I wasn't deprived of that. It's just that's not my choice. It wasn't. It's not my case. It's her case. I'm I'm disappointed that we did not have the opportunity to shine a light on what was going on in a real way. Again, it's not my case. It's her case. So. Yeah. Well said. Thank you. What is your current involvement in her case and what will, what will it be moving forward? Right now, providing pro bono uh, services to her on things ranging from, you know, education assistance stuff, you know, transition issues and potentially post-trial matters. So just trying and then maybe even some congressional engagement, you know, stabilizing, helping her stabilize and giving her, you know, a resource. So that way she can, you know, get the answers that she needs to, to proceed into the future. What you've done is you've taken a person who came off their mental health medication because a Marine told her to do that so that she could, she earned the Eagle Globe and Anchor. She was then raped by one of her fellow Marines. And then you ripped the Eagle Globe and Anchor off of her collar after six, seven years of excellent, outstanding service. Marines, uh, becoming a Marine is a title issue. We, we, we are not joining an organization. We're earning the title as a U.S. Marine. And that means something to just about all the Marines I know. And when you put it in the shredder, that's part of your identity. And on top of everything else she's dealing with, that's hard because she loved the Marine Corps. I think she still loves the Marine Corps. It gave her purpose. She was excelling for the most part, certainly challenged, you know, but it's, it's hard. It's hard. I mean, just to, just to retire in my retirement, you know, transitioning as a, into civilian is a very hard transition, uh, especially for Marines. 
there's a brotherhood there. There's a structure. There's a way of life. There's a you know reputation and all of that. And then you come out and you're just a civilian, just a civilian, quote unquote. And it's just, just it's a different world. So she's going through that on a regular level, but then exponentially, we've taken her title and 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 put it through the shredder. And you know, on top of everything else that she's struggling with, I, I think it's hard. It's tough. You know. I feel for her. We talked a lot in our prior podcasts and in advocacy circles about the systematic issues within the core that came to light under this case. Mm-hmm. Moving mm-hmm. forward, do you see any of these issues issues changing for the better or are we remaining stagnant or just in for a long-term uphill battle? Yeah, I'll try to keep this succinct. I think we're tinkering around the edges. The military justice system was never intended to be a criminal justice system. I've said this and I'll continue to say it. I think there has to be a disciplinary system in the military that allows you to hold people accountable, but not crush their entire future. And we can establish that, you know, and then if we're getting into more serious issues, I think there needs to be a civilian, a government civilian process where the cases are handed over, not a DOJ. It should be made up probably of mostly former military people that can operate without a military chain of command and, and, and manage these issues and provide the appropriate resource. You know, we have military judges at the intermediary appellate level that handle a lot of these things. So these are the SJs that get selected for, to become a judge for a tour of duty. And then they go back into the fleet and maybe become a senior prosecutor or become another SJ for a general officer. The unfortunate thing is, is that you have career officials in the military that are governing most of the outcomes. And obviously their orientation is to protect the institution and not necessarily deal with the individual cases, right? So there's an inherent disconnect in in that system. I think in the convening authority system, that's a problem. I agree that a general should be able to manage discipline, discipline in the ranks criminality generals don't know anything about the criminal justice system they're not in, they're not trained on that they're not intended to know that that's not their mission their mission is lethality so you need discipline to accomplish lethality and that is 100% appropriate in my opinion if it gets to criminality put it into a criminal justice system and get them out of the way because they're a suck on the command. Nobody knows what they're doing. They're screwing it up and people are getting crushed because of the incompetency and the ridiculousness that's, that's associated with this, these processes. At the end of the day, did anybody look back to see that she should not have enlisted in the first place? We have a pipeline issue. You know, truth be told, the Marine Corps, Army, everybody knows. Someone knows when they go and recruit you that if you meet these certain statistical outcomes or, or, or check these blocks, that your likelihood of success is a certain percentage. And they have that pretty well dialed in, right? If you have this, 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 that your likelihood of succeeding for a full tour is less than you know 20%. And whatever criteria they're using, they're letting people in knowing that there's a better than 50-50 chance that they're going to become a problem in the ranks. Why are we doing that? Why are we doing that? Why are we letting people come in and crash the car? Because half the time when these cases are out in town, there's no prosecutors going to deal with this. And if anything, it's going to be a slap on the wrist. I mean, let's be real. 
look around the nation right now. Let's look at the video of some people going into stores and like literally shoplifting in broad daylight on camera, not having a consequence. Okay. And that's just like one of thousands. Okay. How many cops have been killed? Okay. And how many have been prosecuted? How many people have been prosecuted for these killings? We are in a situation where the criminality piece needs to be removed from the lethality piece because this is not a war. Okay. It is uh, a function of bringing people in that we know have, will likely have problems. We, you know, statistically, if that's how we're going to recruit, then we have to establish that at some point they no longer should be resolved within the system. And that will allow for good outcomes on both sides. Because then it's not about what does the general want. That's not about who he's putting on the panel and hooking up, you know, Johnny Colonel, who we served with for 20 years. And if the CG said it's going to court martial, he must be guilty of something and all of that. And then you put it in people's hands that will deal with the case as the facts dictate and not the politics and, uh, and the consequence after. Because we all know in the military that the third and fourth order consequences of you going against a general officer are that your career is becoming terminal quickly. Okay. That's not a mystery. That's a Mm -hmm. fact. So, I mean, that's what we've got right now. And as long as we try to tinker within that system, it's going to become perverted. We cannot, I I don't, I don't even think this is a uniform personnel issue anymore. I think it's a civilian service, civil service issue. I think we establish, you know, a criminal justice system is not the DOJ because military members deserve a different, you know, let's look out in in the civilian community. They have veterans courts. Mm -hmm. Why? Why? Even the civilians understand that. I was in a veterans court. I went through one. Well, there you go. Right. So even the civilians understand that this is a special issue and Mm -hmm. should be dealt with in a different way. So I'm not coming up with this. This, this is somebody else that figured this out a long time ago. So I think fundamentally, this case represents a lot of the disconnects in the system, the tensions that exist, and the inability for it to do what it, they talk about it doing, but can't get there because it was never intended to do that. You, you cannot discipline someone and then at the same time call them a criminal. Those two things don't go together. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so we really need to, to take a look at that and, and see if we can, you know, alter the course. Otherwise I think we're, we're just perpetuating the same thing into the near future. Yeah. And just, future. and just to put a plug in for veteran courts, I think that, you know, they're very useful because they give you a second chance and to take a look at maybe some of the mental health issues that need to be addressed instead of just charging you with crimes and definitely have utilized the veteran court and, you know, got my, got my shit together. But I just have one more question for you. I, Appreciate your time. I know you're busy. So as you know, Tay did an interview with Military Times recently. And the article, I think, came out about two weeks ago. And I'm going to quote the article. It says, the help never came. And this is Tay speaking about mental health treatment. And instead of leading Marines 
Tay now joins the ranks of service members, such as Army Specialist Vanessa Guillen, whose stories have grown to be rallying cries and the struggle for change in the way the military treats mental health and handles sexual assault. What are your thoughts on this statement? To me, it has a rather defeatist tone, in my opinion. What is uh, the silver lining in all of this? Because I feel like there has to be one, or is, is there one? I would say right now, no. And here's why. The nation is unable to confront mental health illness. The military, for sure, is unable to confront mental health illness. The politics are trying to attack the military institutions, the politicians. The military is defending their place on the battlefield in terms of the nation's defense. So you have two sides of this attacking each other both are trying to legitimize their points and survive in the politics of you know you know the war machine as you as you if you will and and you know re-election i i don't believe that the climate will provide a, a path to appropriate resolution in the near term because the sides that are playing in this you know or, or that are part of this discussion don't have the service members as their centerpiece and their and their well-being. It's about their positions and service members are going to lose in that framework all day, every day. So unless there becomes a true bipartisan, cross-functional, honest conversation about the ridiculousness that's happening, I just don't see that out there right now. I, I, I just, the services are, are doubling down on, you know, stupid, in my opinion. I think some of the politicians are poking the bear in the wrong way. And there's not going to be a lot of, the Pentagon can circle the wagons and protect themselves against stupid. And they're doing a pretty good job and they'll continue to do that. But when they're doing that, they're, nobody's solving the problem. So I, I feel like instead of attacking and accusing in questioning, we need to identify and study and resolve where, where the friction points were. And I think we're starting from the wrong conversation. You can't go into a military justice system and fix it because it's not a just it's not a criminal justice system. That's the problem. So you're dumping more water or, or fuel on a fire. And I just I, ju- I just don't see right now that the discussion that's being had will provide a, a way forward. If 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 whose case can be looked at as a case study. And, you know, that's the approach that, you know, people will start taking, then maybe there's some recognition or hope that the conversation will change. But right now, I I don't see that occurring. And so I can't give you the silver lining in the near term. All right. I think that's fair. Is there anything else, any closing thoughts before we end the interview? I think we've covered pretty much everything I wanted to cover. Is there anything outstanding that you would like to touch on? About 80% of the military population is, I want to say it's like 27 and younger. Okay. So the vast majority of the military population is made up of young people, you know, high school, college graduates. That's what's defending our nation. That's what's, you know, operating, you know, million, billion dollars worth of equipment on the battlefield and keeping our enemies at bay. We owe them the best opportunity to succeed and 
whether you agree or disagree with anything that I have to say, which you're more than entitled to do. And, and, and you know, that's a God-given right and, and a constitutional right. The moral compass as a nation to maltreat, to, to, to accept maltreatment of our service should never be tolerated. And I would ask that anybody who ever listens to anything that I have to say to think about that because we can do better. We as a nation can absolutely do better. We cannot have quick memory or, or forget quickly the sacrifice that people have endured to give us the freedom that we have at this point. And I just am concerned that we view things in statistics and sound bites and internet bullying instead of understanding there are human beings that have chosen to serve on behalf of our nation and fight for us so that we can, you know, eat our McDonald's or what have you. And we're going to do so at our own peril. So I really hope that people are starting to pay attention to this, and uh, maybe change their minds as to, you know, how important these issues are, especially the mental health. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here today. And we really appreciate your time and your insight into this very important case. So thank you, Eric. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for having me.